Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where experts are given just six minutes to present their argument. And this is then followed by a question-answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include Robert E. Lee and Bellingcat, How a Volunteer Network Solves Crimes. Our first speaker today will be Alan Guelzo. He is the director of the James Madison Program Initiative on Politics and Statemanship at Princeton University. Previously, he was the Henry Luce Professor of the Civil War Era at Gettysburg College. You may recall that Alan spoke on what happens next about the monuments controversy, and today he will discuss his new book that came out this week, which is a biography of Robert E. Lee. I hope to learn about why the Confederate general has such a continuing historical relevance. Our second speaker is Elliot Higgins. Elliot started an organization called Bellingcat that works with volunteers to solve war crimes using open source video and data. Bellingcat has successfully exposed some major atrocities, such as exposing that a Russian missile shot down a Malaysian airliner over the Ukraine. Bellingcat's volunteer network also proved that Russian agents use a biological nerve gas to kill a double agent on British soil. I hope to learn from Elliot how he successfully put together an organization with thousands of volunteers to solve crimes faster than the world's best law enforcement agencies. During the live call, please feel free to email me questions at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. I want to let you know that there will be no program next week because of the long Columbus Day weekend. All right, let's begin today's program with our first speaker, Alan Guelzo. Alan, go ahead. Larry, it is a pleasure once again to be talking to you and to your audience. And today, I'm going to talk about Robert E. Lee, who, in the days before the American Civil War, could have been considered the very model of an American soldier. He was the son of a Revolutionary War hero, Light Horse Harry Lee, protege of George Washington. He entered West Point in 1825, did so well. He was graduated in 1829, second in his class went into the elite Corps of Engineers, and earned his most impressive military bouquets serving under Winfield Scott in the Mexican War. He was Scott's chief aide in the dramatic campaign from the coast at Veracruz to Mexico City in 1847. He later then served as superintendent of West Point. Then from 1855 to 1861, uh, Lee was lieutenant colonel of the 2nd Cavalry. And then finally, with the outbreak of the Civil War, he was offered field command of the United States forces in dealing with the breakaway Southern Confederacy. And at that moment, he turned his back on more than 30 years of service and took command, first of the Virginia State Forces and then of the principal Confederate Field Army, the Army of Northern Virginia, which he led to many victories, but finally was compelled to surrender in 1865. Almost nothing in those preceding 30 years gives the slightest hint of the decision he made to leave the army, to go back on his oath to defend the United States, to really commit treason against the United States. So the great question about Robert E. Lee is why? Why did he do it? His general answer in 1861 that was that he was a Virginian. And when Virginia seceded from the Union and joined the Confederacy, he was obliged to follow them. But really, was he? 
Robert E. Lee was born in Virginia in 1807, but he'd, he'd grown up in Alexandria, which was then part of the District of Columbia. And most of the places to which he had been assigned in his long career as an engineer were other places, Georgia, St. Louis, Baltimore, New York City. In, in fact, the curiosity is that he actually spent more time consistently in New York than he did almost any other place in the country. What Lee could not ignore were two very important factors that were confronting him. First of all, his father, the great light horse Harry Lee, had been a real hard luck husband and father. And he, he left his family for the West Indies when Robert was only six years old. The shadow that Light Horse Harry cast over the Lee name was one that Robert struggled all his life to redeem. So there's always this broad streak of perfectionism in his behavior. But he also yearned to breathe free of his father's reputation in other ways. He wanted independence. He wanted to be his own man. And in one sense, when he marries Mary Randolph Custis, He's marrying into one of the first families of Virginia. That's an attempt to stake out a realm for himself. But he also yearns for security. So while most of his contemporaries in the army resign their commissions and go into private practice, he stays in the army because it's secure employment. Now the hinge factor where this touches his decision was the family estate at Arlington. This is today the great national cemetery but in Lee's day, it was his wife's property. It was his, the property of the Custis family. He lived there. And it was as much to protect Arlington for his family as it was for Virginia that he chose to resign his commission and refuse the, the offer of command. But that's only one factor. The other factor in Lee's decision is his expectation that there really was not going to be a civil war after all. He makes this decision on April 20th, 1861. Now, hard as it may be for us to appreciate this, in April of 1861, even after the secession of the southern states, even after the firing in Fort Sumter, it was not clear that the crisis would only result in a civil war. Lee could have simply resigned and stayed neutral, or he could accept the invitation extended to him to take command of Virginia forces and play the role of mediator between Virginia and the Union, and thus achieve by peacemaking a fame greater than his father had ever enjoyed. Now, it didn't turn out that way. Like many others, Lee found the secession crisis galloping away from him. And in the end, step by step by step, he found himself by 1862 as the commander of the Army of Northern Virginia. And he played that role as perfectly as he tried to play every other role in life. That he failed did not necessarily surprise him. On the way to Appomattox, he frankly admitted that he'd always expected that the war would turn out the way Appomattox showed that it would. But at least his conduct would show how he could rise even above defeat. So in the end, he still keeps that pursuit of perfection intact. But I think that's the real nub of what we sometimes call the decision, but which is really a series of incremental decisions 
that leads Robert E. Lee away from being a model U.S. Army officer to becoming the Robert E. Lee who becomes the great Confederate general. Thanks, Alan. Um, let's start out with um, that critical first decision um, where Winfield Scott and Abraham Lincoln want to smoke him out to find out w which side of the, of the battle he's on. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he could have stayed neutral if he really wanted to preserve the family estate by obviously joining um, the Confederacy in the way he did. He, he put that at risk. Why? First, a couple questions. First one is, why did Lincoln want to put a Virginian as head of uh, the U.S. Army? Was that, a, was that a serious offer? And second, why didn't he just stay neutral? Why did he have to take command uh, of, the, of the Confederate Army? What, why, didn't he, why didn't he just say, um, I'm, 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 I'm on both sides of this. I'm, I'm staying out. I'm being neutral. Well, understand that Lincoln, from the time that he's elected in November of 1860 until he is inaugurated on the 4th of March, 1861, Lincoln is dealing with a crisis over which he doesn't have a whole lot of control. The southern states are seceding from the Union. Seven of the most southern states, the Gulf states, uh, had seceded from the Union to form this new entity, the Confederate States of America. And yet, all through the speeches he gives, from the time that he's elected until the time he's inaugurated, he keeps downplaying it. This is a phony crisis. This is a crisis which has been gotten up by a lot of hotheads. When I become president, we're going to sit down, we're going to reconstruct things, and there's going to be peace again, and the entire nation will move forward. And I don't think he was talking simply for effect there. I think he really believed that all of the conversations about secession had really been contrived by a lot of hotheads. And the hotheads would soon enough run out of gas, and the sober people would once again regain control. Discussion would take place, and a peaceful situation and resolution would be achieved. To do this, to show his own good faith as President of the United States, Lincoln goes out of his way to make offers to Southerners to join his cabinet. Especially, he makes a very strong offer to John A. Gilmer, a North Carolinian, to join his cabinet. And he fields out other people who are either border state people or who are Southerners about participating in the government. He wants to show he's trying to reach out and make a government, or at least a cabinet, that will include everybody, and therefore all the southern hotheads really can be undercut by that kind of a decision. So it's really not a surprise that he would feel inclined to turn to a Virginian, or at least someone who was born a Virginian, for field command. That would be another signal. I am not thinking in terms of vindictiveness. I really want to bring southerners back into the nation, and here's proof of it in the purity of my, my appointment. Why would Lee accept it? Well, there are a number of reasons why Lee would say yes to this invitation. One is he put 30 years in the Army. His family were all connected to, at first, his father, the Federalists, and then the Whig Party. Federalists and Whigs had always had a very national rather than state or sectional orientation. And yet there were also forces that could push him the other way. If, for instance, he agreed to accept that command, and the command's offered to him through Francis Preston Blair, one of the great political operatives in Washington, who's acting to represent Lincoln. If Lee accepts that command of federal forces, 
there's a strong prob probability that Virginia, which is just seceded from the Union, will occupy Arlington and confiscate it. Because Arlington's built on a bluff on the Potomac River, overlooking the national capital. People in Richmond said, put a couple of batteries of artillery up there and we'll have the Lincoln government in the bag. So he's aware that if he makes a wrong move that way, that could be the end of Arlington for his family. On the other hand, if he agrees, if he resigns from the US Army, turns down the offer, if he agrees to talk to the people at Richmond, and if he agrees, well, perhaps to remain neutral, or even to go to Richmond and accept what's being offered to him. Well, there's liable not to be a war. And if there's no war, then Virginia's not going to confiscate Arlington. And if there's no war, the Union across the, the Potomac River is not going to confiscate Arlington. And he there can be in Richmond working hard to promote reconciliation and some kind of peace agreement, which is exactly what people thought was going to happen in the middle of April of 1861. Even Winfield Scott, the general whom he had served in Mexico and who was kind of a, a, a father figure for him, even Winfield Scott predicted that the country might break into two or three confederacies, but only temporarily. They would come together, there would be a reconstruction of the Union. That, by the way, is the first time that word is used. There'd be a reconstruction of the Union, and there would be Robert E. Lee as one of the principal architects of this reconstructed Union. That seemed to be a perfectly likely and logical scenario. So he goes to Richmond, and in fact, in the month when he is commanding just the Virginia State Forces, all the orders he gives are go on the defensive, stay on the defensive, don't cross the Potomac River, don't provoke anything. When Stonewall Jackson, who isn't Stonewall yet, that won't be until after First Bull Run, when Stonewall Jackson crosses the Potomac River into Maryland, Lee orders him back because he doesn't want any provocation because he's hoping that peace is actually going to be the result. Well, it doesn't turn out that way. And as I say, step by incremental step, Lee is drawn further and further and further into this secession situation, further and further into the arms of the Confederacy, and he ends up commanding the Army of Northern Virginia as the most famous of the Confederacy's generals. Um, I want to change subjects to strategy for the war itself. Um, my understanding is that um, when Lincoln first meets with Winfield Scott, um, Winfield Scott says, you know, I'm not the man to, to run this army. I'm too old. I'm too fat. And Lincoln says, you know, what, how is this thing going to play out? And Scott says something like, um, you know, the weakness uh, of the Southern defense is very easy in this, uh, at the technology of the time. But the Southern weakness are these rivers um, that go in from Tennessee deep into the South. And that should be, you know, the way uh, towards victory. Um, and I want to contrast that with how Robert E. Lee thought about strategy from the Confederate side. It seems that, uh, according to your book, what Lee was thinking was, in order to persuade the North to give up, um, we, uh, the southern states would have to in, uh, invade the northern states um, and cause trouble, uh, suggesting to the, uh, the people of the North that they should just you know, call, it, call it for peace. And hence, uh, Robert E. Lee's decision to invade 
Pennsylvania and go after Gettysburg. So it's interesting that the first thing you should mention is um, Jackson's invasion of Maryland, because this later would become the core of, of Robert E. Lee's strategy. How, how do you yes. think about the strategy for both Lee and for Scott, then later, you know, Grant, uh, thinking about how to, uh, to win this war? Well, in some senses, both Scott and Lee were right. Scott, looking at things from the Union point of view, understood two things about the Union cause and the Union forces. One is that the Union had vast resources, and that over a long period of time, those vast resources would eventually be the controlling factor in the outcome of the war. But he also understood that the available military forces, the Army of the United States, as it was in 1861, was in no shape whatsoever to undertake any kind of dramatic invasion of the Confederacy. <clears throat> and so the recommendation of Winfield Scott is what's sometimes called the Anaconda Plan. Instead of trying to mount a too hasty attack on the Confederacy, what you do is you secure the external rivers and the external borders of the Confederacy, and then very gradually, very slowly, squeeze it to death. Looked at in the long term, that actually was the strategy that did win the war. Lee understood that, but he understood it from looking at it through the other side of the telescope. He understood that the Confederacy could not survive the kind of war that Scott was recommending in the Anaconda Plan. Sooner or later, the superior resources of the North would eventually squeeze the life out of the Confederacy. How do you respond to that? Lee's recommendation was this. The South cannot go what we today would call a 15-round heavyweight bout. If the South is going to win its independence, it's got to score a surprise knockout in the first round. The only way to do that is cross the Potomac, head through Maryland into Pennsylvania, and either have some kind of climactic battle on Pennsylvania soil, or else simply occupy time in Pennsylvania. Yeah, have a Confederate army run around Pennsylvania uh, through the summer and the autumn without let or hindrance, and thereby, by either result, show to the Northern people that the Lincoln administration is hopelessly incompetent. And the disenchant, the political disenchantment that would emerge from that strategy would force the Lincoln administration to open peace negotiations with the Confederacy. Once you open those negotiations, no one is going back to fighting. And that would result in the independence of the Confederacy. What Lee was looking at was, like Scott, the long game. And in this case, Lee was playing not just a military long game, but he was playing a political long game because what he planned to do militarily was to take as its target the political will and resolve of the northern states. He believed that could be worn away by the kind of strategy that he would perform on northern soil and especially in Pennsylvania. And the truth is, Larry, he almost, it almost worked. He came very close to success that way. Yeah, let's expand on that a little bit uh, with the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, you know, there's a lot of confusion in war, particularly at this, at, with this poor communications at that particular point of time. Um, orders were confused and not done as as he wanted, but that's you know that's part of the game, and you got to think that through. Um, how do you think about Gettysburg? Did 
you know, according to what you were just saying, did Lee make the right decision after the loss at Gettysburg to uh, hastily retreat? I know Meade didn't follow him and that was a catastrophe. Or should he have gone uh, somewhere else in Pennsylvania and done what you said, just, you know, cause trouble all over Pennsylvania? How do you think about um, Lee's decisions at Gettysburg and then Lee's decisions after the loss of Gettysburg after that? Lee's overall campaign plan for the summer of 1863 was to get loose in Pennsylvania and either fight that climactic battle, which beforehand he predicted would probably be fought somewhere in the vicinity of Gettysburg, because Gettysburg is this, this wonderful center where all these roads come together in lower south uh, central Pennsylvania. Either there was going to be a climactic battle like that, which, it, which he is confident of winning. I mean, he is just beaten the Army of the Potomac at two major battles at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Uh, this is an army which is, which is lacking, as far as Lee is able to understand it. It's lacking in morale. It's lacking in good leadership. And it might well be defeated in a climactic battle. If that happens, then there's nothing that stands in the way of a Confederate army that would move on Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, who knows, even New York City. But even if it doesn't fight such a great battle, his, his presence in Pennsylvania is going to depress the political situation so greatly that the Lincoln administration might not recover from it. Think of it this way. In the fall of 1862, Lincoln issues his preliminary emancipation proclamation. He gets shellacked politically for that. His party loses something like 35 seats in the House of Representatives, and it loses two key northern governorships, New York and New Jersey, to anti-Lincoln Democrats. In the fall of 1863, there were two more gubernatorial elections up, Pennsylvania and Ohio. If Lee can embarrass the Union cause in the summer of 1863, those elections in Pennsylvania and Ohio will go to anti-Lincoln Democrats. Then look at the map. New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, that's, that's the center core of the Union as, as, it, as it existed in 1863. If the governors of those states fold their arms and say, we are not cooperating further with this war because it's obviously going nowhere, there would have been no choice. Lincoln would have had to go to a negotiating table, and the result of that would have been nothing except Confederate independence. Now, it doesn't turn out that way because the Battle of Gettysburg doesn't turn out that way. But bear in mind two things. One is, it was a pretty close-run affair. Lee came within an ace of success at Gettysburg. And the thought of the consequences of a Confederate victory on the third day at Gettysburg are enough to make the eyes revolve back into the head. It's, it's, a, it's a dreadful thought on its own terms. The other thing is, he loses so much in the battle that he really doesn't have much choice afterwards but to withdraw back across the Potomac back into Virginia. But Larry, by the time we get to the plans for the campaign of 1864, Lee once again wants to launch an invasion of the North. And he's only thwarted from doing that by the fact that Ulysses Grant has now taken charge of things in the Eastern Theater, and Grant launches his own campaign across the Rapidan and across the Rappahannock Rivers. And that's the overland campaign that will in the long run, uh, win the war in the East. But if Lee had had his druthers, 
there would have been a third Confederate invasion north of the Potomac in 1864. I want to change subjects to um, the relationship between the Army and um, the president and, and, the, and the government. You know, uh, Samuel Huntington wrote this great book called The Soldier and the State, which which expressed the historical background for how uh, the U.S. Army has consistently delegated its authority directly to the president um, and has really never attempted a coup or, or tried uh, to undermine the government. And what I thought was interesting was not only was that the case with um, the federal government, but it also appears to have been the case with the Confederacy as well. I mean, there are times where Robert E. Lee is very um, down on Jefferson Davis's actions and decisions, but he, according to your book, seems to be very deferential to uh, the democratic process and delegates delegation of authority to, to the president of the Confederacy. Um, how do you think about um, the soldier in the state as it related to Robert E. Lee's decision-making process? And maybe you contrast that with McClellan's um, bad behavior, his um, decision, for example, uh, to go to sleep instead of meeting with the president when he's waiting in his foyer, um, his decision right. as his decision to run against Lincoln in the 1864 presidential election. All right. So, what what are your thoughts on delegation of authority to um, civilians? Well, in large measure, you have that difference of result in Lee and McClellan because of the experiences of Lee and McClellan, which are radically different on that point. Robert E. Lee is the son of a famous Revolutionary War general who makes the mistake of getting himself too deeply involved in politics, Federalist politics in Virginia, even in Maryland. Robert E. Lee's father not only loses the governorship of Virginia because he makes that kind of mistake, but he actually gets beaten within an inch of his life by an anti-federalist mob in Baltimore. That was one reason why his father simply decamps and leaves for the West Indies. So there's exhibit A. If you're a military leader, if you're someone with a military reputation, don't touch the political rail. It will electrocute you. All right, that's, that's exhibit A, his own father. Exhibit B, his first surrogate father, which was the man who was the head of the Corps of Engineers, when Lee was first commissioned, and that was Charles Gratiot. Lincoln, um, Lee relied a great deal on Charles Gratiot. He looked up to Charles Gratiot a great deal, and Charles Gratiot showered a great deal of attention on Lee. But Charles Gratiot made the mistake of running afoul of Andrew Jackson's administration. And Jackson and his successor, Martin Van Buren, punished Gratiot for it. And Gratiot found himself dismissed from the army, disgraced, he actually ends his career as a mere clerk in the Federal Land Office. What a humiliation. And then Exhibit C is Winfield Scott. Despite Winfield Scott's great campaign from Veracruz to Mexico City in 1847, nevertheless, even Winfield Scott runs afoul of the jealousy of President James Knox Polk. And Scott himself is made to suffer for it, not as severely as Gratiot, but he's made to suffer for it. And these three exhibits taken together are a constant lesson to Robert E. Lee. No military man should ever put his foot 
in the political river, because if you do, it will wash you away. And he has Lighthorse Harry Lee and Charles Gracious and Winfield Scott showing that. When he becomes the principal general of the Confederacy, he is almost alarmingly deferential to Jefferson Davis, even when he believes that Davis and the Confederate Congress are screwing things up royally. He still will not challenge them. And I think the reason he is not going to challenge them is he has seen what happens to soldiers like his father, like Grayshut, like Scott. He has seen what happens to soldiers who involve themselves politically. Contrast that with George McClellan. George McClellan's born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He graduates from West Point amid the praise and applause of everyone. Everyone assumes he's going to be a military genius. When he becomes general of general in chief of the Union armies, he simply assumes that he knows more than anyone else how a war should be conducted. And that includes Abraham Lincoln. In fact, the contrast between McClellan, McClellan, who, who's born to this elite Philadelphia medical family, uh, goes to the University of Pennsylvania, goes to West Point, contrast that with Abraham Lincoln, this country lawyer from Illinois who speaks in this outre upper border accent. And McClellan looked at Lincoln and the only conclusion he could draw from Lincoln was that Lincoln was, a, was an ignorant gorilla. In fact, that's the word he uses for Lincoln, the original gorilla. So his reaction when Lincoln tries to assert control as constitutional commander in chief is to say, what do you know about anything? It's not helped by the fact that McClellan's politics are oriented in the direction of the Democratic Party. He has no sympathy for emancipation, no sympathy for any form of anti-slavery. And when Lincoln takes the step to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, McClellan almost, almost balks at, at issuing the proclamation in turn to his army. His political advisors have to tell him, no, you've got to do this, otherwise it would be treason. And there are people in his army telling George McClellan, General, march on Washington. We will follow you. McClellan had come to believe that Lincoln, not Robert E. Lee, was the real problem in the Civil War. And I think it is safe to say that in that month between the Battle of Antietam and the time when Lincoln finally summons up the determination to dismiss McClellan from his command. In that window of time, we were probably about as close to some kind of military intervention or military coup as we have ever been in American history. Very different reactions, Lee's and McClellan's. And the irony is the reaction that I think we should admire, the reaction I think Huntington admired in his book, is the reaction of Robert E. Lee rather than the reaction of the Union commander, George Brinton McClellan. You know, you mentioned um, Lincoln's delayed tactic of firing um, the disrespectful McClellan. Um, and I think it was he was talking, I think it was the Stanton who was demanding be fired and, uh, that McClellan be fired. And he said something like, it's easy for you to say to fire uh, the general. But I have the responsibility to decide who, who should replace him, and I don't have that man. And, you know, give me the replacement, and I'm happy to fire him, but until such time, I'm kind of boxed. How, how do you think about the, the problems Lincoln faced, and not only with McClellan, but, you know, with 
a, his first few generals were terrible. How? how oh, yeah. Why did why did it take Lincoln so long to find someone like Grant and Sherman to run this thing? The wonder is he ever did find Grant and Sherman to run everything. You understand, Larry, the, the pre-war United States Army was really not much more than a frontier constabulary. At the outbreak of the Civil War, the United States Army was exactly 16,000 men and officers. It was not a formidable fighting force, and it had never been designed that way. The officers who go to West Point are put through a course of study to make them engineers, not to make them combat leaders or great strategic thinkers. 90% of the time a cadet would have spent at West Point would have been in studies related to engineering, in other words, the construction of fortifications. So when the Civil War breaks out, it presents Lincoln, it presents the nation with a, with a military necessity that no one has ever really planned for. And there's no one who really knows what to do. I mean, it's a terrible thing to admit because this, the American Civil War is our great story. It is our great Iliad. Yet the truth of the matter is that when we found ourselves involved in this Civil War, we had no one to put in charge of it but amateurs amateurs who barely knew what they were doing. And so one after another, these generals is put up and one after another and then gets knocked down. And this is true on both sides. After a while, you scratch your head and you think, wait a minute, doesn't anybody here know, as Casey Stengel once said, how to play this game? And it, and it really looked like, like it, that, that people did not, because in large measure, the United States Army had never been designed to do that. So you have an entire military culture which is having to retool itself on the job under pressure. And the marvel is that it actually does find some genuine natural talents like Ulysses Grant, like William Tecumseh Sherman. Even, I, I'm, I, I must add, even a natural military talent like Robert E. Lee. Uh, finding them was almost accidental. Because the people who would ordinarily have advanced into positions of leadership were, by and large, people who were almost totally unfitted for it. I mean, the class size of West Point is ridiculously small. Um, you mentioned in your book, I think, that uh, Lee was uh, in a class of 46 kids. Um, yeah. And yet, and yet, despite this class being, size being so small, you get... You know, you get Lee, you get Grant, you get um, Johnston. There were a, all these guys ended up, you know, were in this class. It's just, it's a, they must have known each other so well. Um, I just find it mind-boggling how small the class size. It's, it's like one of these New York City private schools. Um, <laughs> well, that's the, there, were, there was an advantage, at least in that. I mean, Lee and Johnston were both classmates at West Point. Um, Grant and Sherman almost overlap. But a lot of these, a lot of the West Pointers who become generals in the Civil War, yes, they did know each other as cadets. And sometimes that was, that, that knowledge came in very usefully. To give you an example, when John Bell Hood um, becomes commander of the Army of Tennessee uh, in 1864, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman is a little puzzled by this. He wanted, and he asks among his officers, does any of you know John Bell Hood? 
And <laughs> one of them pops up and says, oh, yeah, I used to play poker with him. This is a man who would bet $1,000 with hardly a pair in his hands. And that told Sherman everything he needed to know about Hood, that Hood would launch one reckless attack after another, and all that Sherman had to do was to let Hood bleed his army to death. Yeah, they knew each other that way, and sometimes that knowledge could come in very handy. Not the kind of thing, by the way, that anybody was teaching in one of those classrooms in, in, at West Point, but still, it's some practical and, as I say, sometimes very useful knowledge. Why did you decide to write a book on Robert E. Lee and now? Um, and why, why is his um, historical reputation um, maybe, in, maybe in the decades after the war and maybe ending a couple decades ago, was, he was a master uh, performer? And why does it appear that his historical um, reputation in decline? Well, I decided to write a book about Robert E. Lee after I'd finished Gettysburg, The Last Invasion in 2013. And there were really two things operative in my mind. Up to this point, I had written almost exclusively on what you could call union subjects. Uh, I'm, I'm a Yankee from Yankee land. I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm from Philadelphia. And I've never been the sort who looked at the lost cause with, 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 with anything but skepticism and certainly never was inclined to put a halo around the head of Robert E. Lee. But having written so much about Abraham Lincoln in particular and about the Union cause in general, I was really intrigued by the possibility of looking at the Civil War through the other end of the telescope. What did this war look like from the Confederate point of view? And what better set of eyes to look at it through than those of Robert E. Lee? Mm -hmm. The other question that intrigued me this way was a little bit more, shall we say, speculative. And that is, how do you write the biography of someone who commits treason? And, and I, I, use, I don't use that word carelessly. I don't throw that around just to be nasty and to try to say something snarky about Robert E. Lee and, and thus offend everybody living below the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, I'm looking at this constitutionally. I'm looking at this legally. Uh, Robert E. Lee took an oath upon his commissioning in 1829 to defend the United States and to obey the orders of the President of the United States. There is an oath today that we take. My son, who is a serving officer in the United States Army, took this oath. My father, who was an officer, took the oath. I took the oath when I became a member of the National Council of the Humanities. And what did it say? It said, you preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, domestic and foreign. I took that oath seriously. So did my father. So does my son. For someone to turn his back on that was to raise his hand against everything that I held dear. And I've often said to people that if I had been a soldier in 1861 to 1865, and if on some battlefield Robert E. Lee had galloped into my gun sights, I would have pulled the trigger. So for me, the question then becomes, how do you write what I've called difficult biography? 
But you know, when you write a biography of someone like Abraham Lincoln, you can write about someone that you can unreservedly admire. You can look at, at, at Lincoln and say, here is a great man, and mm-hmm. I admire him for being a great man. But how do you write the biography of someone who did something, as I'm describing, who committed treason? How do you write the biography of someone who made big mistakes? I mean, for instance, how do you write a biography of Neville Chamberlain? I mean, Neville Chamberlain, why didn't Neville Chamberlain see Adolf Hitler for what he was? Was he blind? No. So you ask the question, and what you're confronted with is what I'm calling difficult biography. Well, there was a challenge. There was, you might say that was a red rag, (laughs) a red rag to my curiosity. How would you write the biography of someone who has done that? How would you write a difficult biography? And that's what I really plunged into. Now, mind you, that was in 2013, 2014, when Robert E. Lee was still, by and large, simply a Confederate general out of the history of the Civil War. All that began to change dramatically after Charlottesville in 2017, and certainly began to change again after 2020. And Robert E. Lee's reputation sank like a stone, perhaps advisedly, perhaps unadvisedly. Certainly one thing which involved Lee and the sinking of Lee's reputation was that the Charlottesville riot took place around a statue, an equestrian statue, of Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. But the larger question was, what do statues of Robert E. Lee mean, and what did they mean when they were erected? Uh, were these monuments to white supremacy? Uh, if so, then that raises the whole question, why do we have these monuments on the landscape? And certainly, speaking as a Yankee, there is a certain puzzlement in my mind. Why, why, would, why would anyone even think about putting up a monument to Robert E. Lee? I mean, if someone came to me today and said, uh, we would like to know if you would sign on to a petition endorsing a, a new statue of Robert E. Lee, I would tell them as politely as I could to get lost. So when I look at things like that, when I look at things like the Confederate flag, these are things which I'm manifestly unhappy with. And that has greatly complicated the process of writing this book. If this started out as difficult biography, it got more difficult as time went by. And yet, you can't ignore difficult biography. Plutarch and Suetonius wrote about difficult biographical subjects. Um, Plutarch has to write about Caesar and Alexander. He's got to write about Demosthenes and Cicero. And there are aspects of the characters of those classical uh, figures uh, which were not pleasant. Uh, Suetonius has to write about uh, Tiberius Caesar. And Tiberius was a monster of, of the First Order. So we can't shrink from writing difficult biography or there simply will be large blank gaps in our understanding. But writing difficult biography is a real challenge. It's a species of biographical writing which requires you to do something which is difficult for a biographer to do. And that is to exercise the biographer's empathy, because that's what a biographer needs to understand the subject. Without that, tipping over into a wretched kind of sympathy. You want to find that middle path 
the middle path of empathy so that you don't fall off one side into rank sympathy, but you don't fall off the other into a kind of sanctimonious sense of seriousness. And that, that was a challenge for me as a historian and as a writer. And in large measure, those are the reasons why I stuck with uh, writing this book and have brought it uh, to publication today. You know, it, it's strange how the view of the Confederacy has changed over time, um, maybe particularly uh, from the Southern perspective. Um, you know, Lee is lionized by uh, histori Southern historians um, for almost immediately after the war and um, almost to, to the present day. And, you know, but not only just historians, you know, you've got, you know, organizations like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, um, you know, I, even the weekend warriors who do reenactments of the Civil War seem to um, not get into these issues, but focus on other aspects of the Confederacy, which, which might also bring in the concepts of the theory of the lost cause. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was, I took my son to go visit UT Austin as a potential place to go to college and I snuck away and, and walked around the uh, the state capitol building, and, and there was this monument, a statue uh, uh, to the lost cause. It was very similar to some of the ideas that you were mentioning about the snake. Um, they said, you know, he, we were, you know, the South was just doing, trying to fight for the Constitution, and, you know, it was sort of unfair. There was two odd million against 600,000, and of course we lost, but, you know, we gave everything we had. And so Lee is part of that lost cause concept of this noble soldier making the best out of, a, of a bad options. How do you think about um, these three aspects? One is why was he lionized for so long? How did it play into the, the thesis of the, of the lost cause? Um, and you know, what is driving uh, the ideas of Southern history? Well, let me, let me try to answer them in this order. First of all, the loss, Lee himself did not have direct involvement with the development of the lost cause myth. The lost cause began very early as an idea. There's a book published by Edward Pollard as early as 1866 called The Lost Cause. And Pollard articulates a number of the ideas that you've just mentioned. Lee did not show a whole lot in the way of enthusiasm for that. He actively discouraged putting up monuments. He encouraged former Confederate leaders like Jubal Early, even the wife of Jefferson Davis, Verena Davis, to say nothing that would cause dissension and bad feeling between the sections. Stay as far away from that as possible. He doesn't attend reunions. Uh, in 1869, there was a serious effort made here at Gettysburg to have a reunion of the major leaders of the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia. And the idea was they were going to go over the battlefield and talk over the various perspectives from each side. And Lee refused to come. And his answer simply was, I really don't see that this is going to promote healthy national feeling. Uh, we have to move beyond the war. And there are greater challenges lying before us. But Lee does not lend much encouragement to the makers of the lost cause. He, he lent even less encouragement to forms of Southern resistance after the war. 
Uh, he gives no countenance at all to the Ku Klux Klan. And he cooperates as far as he believes he is obliged to cooperate with Union Reconstruction Forces. He doesn't like cooperating with them. Well, they're an occupation force. It's, there's a certain degree in which you can understand that. But at the same time, he also is not actively out there ginning up resistance to occupation either, to Reconstruction. So Lee does not have a large role to play in the creating of a lost cause. He becomes a feature of the lost cause really only after his death in 1870. And it's after his death that people like Jubal Early, especially in Jubal Early's uh, famous speech in 1872 in Lexington, Virginia, where he picks up the banner of Robert E. Lee and basically enlists Lee posthumously uh, in the ranks of the lost cause. I think that the lost cause for a long time served a number of goals. One goal was white supremacy. There was no question the lost cause was a way of saying um, white people are still in charge here in the South. And just because we got beaten to a pulp on the battlefield uh, doesn't mean that we're not still in charge. That's one meaning of the lost cause. Another meaning of the lost cause is how do you how do you salvage some kind of dignity out of defeat? I mean, in America, we live by the success ethic. Anyone who is successful is good. Anyone who fails is bad. It's like what Vince Lombardi once said, that winning isn't just the most important thing. It's the only thing. Robert E. Lee has, I think, the hold he has on people, not so much because of the lost cause. That's part of it. Not so much because even of Southern white supremacist resistance, although that's part of it too. I think the most important segment of what made Lee a compelling figure for generations, even into our own, our own time, was that he pulls off this business of surrender with the, with the most exquisite form of dignity that he goes to Appomattox, he surrenders his army, he resists the blandishments of officers who wanted to say, don't surrender, let's take to the hills, let's carry on a guerrilla warfare for the next 30 years in the Appalachians. He refuses that. His argument is we have lost the war. Let's face up to that and honorably surrender this army and take the consequences. The dignity with which he does that was almost like someone who comes to the end of a very bad play, but whose performance has been so good that they give him a standing ovation anyway, even if the play's lousy. And I think that has a lot to do with the compelling image of Robert E. Lee, not just in, in the South, but in fact across the country. I mean, you don't have to limit yourself just to Southerners to find people who frankly admire Robert E. Lee. You can even see this a little bit even in the last five years of Lee's life. Lee, after the surrender at Appomattox, goes off to become the president of Washington College, which is now today Washington and Lee University. And it was, it was a very unlikely kind of job for him to take because he did not see himself as an educator and Washington College was almost without a pulse at the end of the war. But within five years, he picks the place up, 
he dramatically increases the student body, increases the faculty, retools the curriculum in surprisingly progressive directions, and manages to turn into the most unlikely thing of all, and that is a great fundraiser. And where does he do the fundraising most successfully? Among the North. Yes, he gets Northerners sending him money, a quarter of a million dollars. Northern philanthropists like George Peabody in Massachusetts, Cyrus McCormick in Illinois, uh, Robert E. Lee really knew how to shake the apples out of the tree. He would today be ma have made a great development officer. And he does this because in large measure, people admire the dignity that he could wrap around defeat. Defeat, that ugly word in the American lexicon. Lee manages, he manages to defeat that way. Yeah. Let's expand on that um, that critical meeting in mathematics for a second and do a historical comparison. You know, when the Japanese uh, surrendered um, to MacArthur on, I don't remember what, what boat it was on, but the Japanese were, sent a very junior US, guy. USS Missouri. It's down in Missouri. Yeah, that, that, they, Missouri. They, they sent a, a relatively junior guy. No one was willing to go. Um, you know, when the Germans gave up in World War One and World War Two, I don't remember who they sent, but it was, um, I think, generally of someone of, of very little importance. But here, I mean, no one is, you know, the only person more senior than Robert E. Lee would have been Jefferson Davis himself. Um, and there he goes, you know, with an aide, you know, to go visit the, you know, the head of the, you know, Northern Virginia Army, the head of, of the entire army, uh, General Grant. And I, I think what's amazing about it is a couple of things, and you talk about it in your book, and I want you to expand on it a little bit, was Lee can't believe the good terms he's being offered. Yes. <laughs> uh, and he's like, yeah, it's sort of like that episode of Seinfeld where they offer Kramer coffee for life. Uh, I'll take it, you know. Uh, you know, it's, and, you know, Grant thinks he's getting away with something as well. Both, both parties think they're getting a, a, a grand bargain. Um, yeah. And both Jefferson Davis and, and Stanton and Lincoln were very worried about giving their officers the rights to negotiate the peace. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, like, wh how that went down and why we should view that, what, what the leadership was, what the political leadership was worried about and why we should, you know, glorify the result. Well. The funny thing about Appomattox, although funny is probably the wrong word to use, the ironic thing about Appomattox is that both of these leaders, Lee and Grant, come to the Wilmer McLean parlor at Appomattox Courthouse, both of them with an ace up their sleeve that the other does not know about. Robert E. Lee comes to this meeting with his officers beseeching, to turn, beseeching him to turn the Army of Northern Virginia loose. Now, he is not thrilled about that. But on the, on the, at the same time, Robert E. Lee also knows that Ulysses Grant is the general with the reputation as unconditional surrender Grant. Well, what unconditional surrender means is you're surrendering without conditions and without terms. When you are surrendering the way Lee is surrendering, this is someone who has 
been conducting the army of a rebellion, not a legitimate government. The United States never recognized the legitimacy of the Confederate government. Abraham Lincoln never uses the term Confederate States of America. He'll always use some circumlocution, or he'll say the Confederate States so-called. But he'll never, even in correspondence, recognize the legitimacy of the Confederate government. It's always an insurrection. It's always a rebellion. Well, what do you do to the soldiers of a rebellion or an insurrection when they surrender? If you're an unconditional surrender guy, you can put a lot of people up against a barn wall and shoot them. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. That's what you do with rebels and traitors. You could take the Army of Northern Virginia and parade it through the streets of Washington or the streets of New York City like some kind of Roman triumph with people throwing garbage at them. That could happen because unconditional surrender means you have no conditions under which you're laying down your weapons. So Lee knows that Grant could do that. So the ace that Lee has is, if Grant is going to be an iron pants about this surrender, if he's going to insist on unconditional surrender, then Lee will go back to his army and he'll fight it out there and he'll tell his soldiers, do as you, do as you see fit. Grant, on the other hand, Grant's coming to this. Apparently he's coming as the great Ulysses Grant, unconditional surrender Grant. He's got the army of the Potomac behind him and they, they've apparently got their, their hands around the neck of the Confederates. Yeah, but (laughs) what Grant was not telling them was why he turns up at Appomattox Courthouse dressed in an old, dirty uniform and mud-splattered boots. I mean, that's a very famous story about Grant. Grant shows up for the surrender, leaves in a dress uniform. Grant's just, he's in an ordinary soldier's uh, jacket with the lieutenant general's uh, shoulder straps sewn on. Why? Was it because Grant was just you know, preternaturally sloppy as a dresser? No. It was because Grant had left his baggage wagons and supply wagons so far to the rear. You see, when, when Grant captured Richmond, Lee immediately bolts west, and Grant immediately bolts after him. And he bolts after him so fast that after a week, Grant is so far ahead of his supply trains, he can't even feed his own army. So Grant comes to Appomattox Courthouse. He doesn't even have a dress uniform to to wear. He comes to the surrender ceremony knowing that, and this is what he admitted years later to the journalist John Russell Young, if if he couldn't have gotten Lee to surrender there, he would have had to have broken off the pursuit because they were so far ahead of their supply lines. So Grant knows he's got he has got to make Lee an offer he can't refuse. So he does. And instead of a demand for unconditional surrender, Grant instead proposes, we'll parole all of the Army of Northern Virginia from Lee on down, parole every one of them, permit soldiers of the Army of Northern Virginia to take, to claim any mules or horses they want, take them home with them for spring planting. And even on top of that, officers of the army, instead of lining them up and shooting them, officers of Lee's army will be permitted to keep their sidearms. That's a very symbolic gesture. Mm -hmm. Well, Lee looks at that, and it's everything he could desire. They sit down, they trade their copies of their, their, their letters and acceptances, and the surrender's done. Each has gotten what they wanted, and they've gotten it not 
quite understanding what the other had as a possible alternative. It's a remarkable movement. But it means that Lee's army dissolves. It does not take to the highways and the byways like robbers and pilferers. It dissolves. It, just, it goes away. It fades back into, this, into the civilian context. And by the same token, those Confederate soldiers are able to go home, as Grant had specified, without fear of molestation by the federal government, provided they observe the terms of the parole. And Grant is able to go back to Washington and say, the entire Army of Northern Virginia has surrendered. With that, that's, that's the backbone of the Confederacy. Once that's gone, you're simply waiting and looking at your watch and waiting for the rest of the Confederacy to fall into your lap. It's a great moment. It's a great moment, but it's also a moment for, for real nail-biting behind the scenes. What seems bizarre about that story is Grant takes this authority, but doesn't appear to have checked it with the president. Uh, he knew he was meeting with them. He could have gotten some sort of guidance. Or did he, um, he had conversations with the president. We know that Lincoln later is lenient um, in his, um, his second inaugural. What do, you, do you think that Grant felt that he was following um, Lincoln's objectives, that he loosely understood what Lincoln wanted to do, and this reflected not only his views, but uh, reflected that of the administration? Before Lincoln and Grant parted company at Petersburg, Lincoln told Grant pretty forthrightly, we have to bring this war to an end, and we have to bring it to, this war to an end soon, because we're running out of money. We're, we're not going to be able to pay for much more of this war. Lincoln and Grant understand each other to a remarkable degree. It is a great partnership. And in fact, one of the projects I have in front of me uh, as, as you know, something else coming right up you know, on the road uh, is a, a project with Glenn LaFantasy, a Grant scholar. Grant and I, uh, Glenn and I are going to sit down together and we're going to pull into one volume all of the Grant-Lincoln correspondence in the mm. years between 1862 and 1865. And what emerges out of that correspondence and what people will be able to read in this book when, when we have this published uh, is, is a really tremendous partnership between two people who really came to trust each other implicitly. So Lincoln tells Grant, you've got to get the war over with. You've got to get Lee to surrender. And Lincoln, for his part, is willing to trust Grant to mm. take that into execution. And after the surrender, Grant comes back to Washington. He sits down at a cabinet meeting with Lincoln and the other members of the cabinet. Lincoln never utters a syllable of rebuke to Grant for having obtained these terms. As far as Lincoln is concerned, this was the best possible way things could have been managed. So what Grant does is very much reading the mind of Abraham Lincoln. The same cannot really be said about Lee and Jefferson Davis. Jefferson oh. Davis. Jefferson Davis was, I mean, the only word I can, I can use, Larry, is delusional. Uh, yeah. this, war, this war was lost beyond any hope of recall, and yet Jefferson Davis was amusing himself with the prospect that we were going to continue. He was going to run away down into the South. Somehow they were going to keep on fighting, and no, Robert E. Lee must not surrender. 
Lee ignores it. Finally, by the end of the war, Lee is finally going to do something to politicians he had never done before, and that is disobey them. And he surrenders his army to Grant. And we can, we can be grateful. If we can be grateful to Robert E. Lee for nothing else, we can at least be grateful to, for the fact that he did surrender the army intact. In that respect, what he did at that point was probably the greatest service he could have done the country. We end each session on a note of optimism, and I've been trying to think about how to ask this question about what specific things to be optimistic about. But I, I, this is sort of a, a more generic question than normal for an optimism question. And it is, um, in teaching civil war to the next generation of Americans, you know, what should they get out of it? And you know, what can we be optimistic about children learning about our country uh, that will serve us in the future? I think three things. First of all, we can learn that the Constitution of the United States survived the severest test that any instrument of government can be put to. We can look back on 1861 to 1865 and see that our Constitution worked under the stress and under the pressure of the, the greatest cataclysm that this nation had ever experienced. And not only did it work before, but it worked through and it worked after. And if it does nothing else, the Civil War should tell us that what we have in our Constitution is a remarkable and durable political document, not, mm -hmm. not be thought of or described lightly. A document like that which could endure the Civil War intact, could guide this country during a crisis like that, is a genuinely remarkable piece of political literature, and we should prize it that way. The second thing I think we could learn from it and teach to students is that at the moment of great crisis, which the Civil War was, the American democracy produced a great leader, and that was Abraham Lincoln. Actually produced a number of great leaders, but greatest above them all, towering above them all, Abraham Lincoln. It's often been said, and I'm afraid that even Samuel Huntington was inclined to say it, or at least some of his students were, that the great flaw of democracy is that it takes the common individual, the common citizen, and makes them the center of attention. And isn't that a big mistake? Because the common citizen is likely to be a very boring, commonplace person. That's supposed to be an argument against democracy. But when we look at what happened in the Civil War, what we see is that at this moment of, of life and death trial, there steps forward, almost without any precedent, almost without an expectation, a person who had no particular experience in bureaucracy or executive management or any of those things that we think consultants tell us uh, people are supposed to have, this man who had been a lawyer, who had been a single-term congressman, steps forward and provides us with the greatest and most eloquent leadership we have ever had. If the American people can provide from their ranks that kind of leadership in that kind of crisis, then we have the best argument in favor of democracy that has ever been devised. And I offer Abraham Lincoln as the best example and explanation of that. The third thing is, when we look at how this war was conducted, this was a war 
in which untrained masses of young Americans were thrown together in the most violent and bloody kinds of conflicts. And yet they stood to it with a firmness and a resolution that takes the breath away. And once again, we're, we're confronted with this conundrum. That ordinary people are just supposed to be ordinary. But when we look at the soldiers of the Civil War, and when we look at leaders like Grant, Sherman, Sheridan, these, these were people who were not walking around before the war with sterling resumes. Larry, Grant was, Grant was clerking in his father's leather goods store in Galena, Illinois, when the war broke out. And in eight years, he's president of the United States. It's, it's really, it's, it's a greater story even, we think the rise of Abraham Lincoln is a great story. The rise of Ulysses Grant is actually an even greater one. But that kind of military leadership from out of the ranks of the ordinary citizens, it's like nothing that you see except perhaps Cincinnatus at his plow in the Roman Republic, walking away from his farm, taking command of the emergency, solving the emergency, and then walking back and picking up with his plow where he left off. Nothing like it since then. And that is what we see in our military leadership in the Civil War. Once again, what we have is a ratification of this idea of democracy that Lincoln gave such eloquent shape to at Gettysburg in November of 1863. There are wonderful lessons to be learned from the teaching of our American Civil War. I've been, I've been teaching them now myself for many decades, and I probably am gonna keep on teaching them for as long as I'm able. But it is a great story, and it is a story that just never wears out. Alan, thank you. That was really an extraordinary session. I'm so happy I decided to get you to come on again for Robert E. Lee, and I hope to have you again soon. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure. Elliot Higgins is our next guest. He is the author and founder of the organization Bellingcat. His book is entitled, We Are Bellingcat, Global Crime, Online Sleuth, and the Bold Future of News. Elliot, please go ahead. So um, what I'd like to talk to you about today is um, disinformation and my experiences with it uh, working at Bellingcat. It's something that I've both been personally targeted with and also um, encountered a lot during our work because we work on a number of topics where there's a lot of discussion and debate, particularly online, and also where there's a lot of interest from state actors, uh, in particular Russia. So um, we've had kind of years of experience dealing with disinformation, both countering it and both uh, having to kind of live with it as well. Um, but the kind of pattern of behavior behind it is often something that we see repeated times and time again. When we're talking about um, disinformation, it's usually in the context of how we see it through the lens of the 2016 US election, where, you know, there was all this Russian interference and, you know, bot networks and fake news and all kinds of things like that. But Really, it's often what we're doing to ourselves as a society rather than an outside force acting on us, even if those outside forces often take advantage of it and still do try to do that. Um, for example, when we've been working on um, the topic of Syria, in particular um, chemical attacks, it became very apparent that a community was forming, a kind of counterfactual community, around the denial of chemical weapon use. They would look at these various attacks that were happening, you know, starting from 2013 onwards, and always find some kind of excuse. And these 
communities were made up of um, individuals, uh, kind of kind of conspiracy websites, uh, anti-war, um, well, generally more anti-Western or anti-imperialist, as they like to call it, websites. Um, they kind of over time kind of networked and banded together to create this alternative media ecosystem that reinforced the viewpoints by basically drawing people into that and then uh, just you know, telling them the same stories, but from a variety of different sites. They're basically just sharing the same stories and recycling them time and time again. And the reason those communities formed is something that I think is quite crucial for understanding why disinformation uh, occurs in the way it does. It's because people often who are part of these communities feel they've been kind of fundamentally and almost traumatically betrayed by the source of authority that's now telling them the thing that they have decided is must be a lie because you can't trust this source of authority. In particular, in the context of Syria, it was the um, build-up to the Iraq War in 2003 and the lies told by the US and UK government to justify that. Many of the people now who make up these communities are people who see everything through that same lens. So when we're talking about Syrian chemical weapons, they're thinking in terms of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction and how that turned out. And all their arguments and all their thinking is framed around that kind of thing. And what happens is you you can use an example, for example, of coronavirus, where you might be someone who's distrusting of the sources of authority or telling you to get a vaccination because, you know, you may have had a bad experience with a doctor. Or you might not really trust a government that isn't being particularly well led. Um, and you decide that maybe you want to, you know, Google coronavirus uh, concerns or vaccination problems. And you'll immediately be directed by the helpful search engines to websites and online communities and you know, Facebook groups that also have these same concerns. Now, that's not to say these groups are going to be people who are telling you that Bill Gates is putting microchips in vaccines, but that will be the first step on a journey that draws you into communities that might bring you to that point. Because you'll find yourself then surrounded by people who have the same concerns and have those concerns reinforced by people who have become the kind of new sources of authority in those communities. With the case of chemical weapons attacks, for example, in Syria, a lot of those were kind of activists who are long-term anti-war activists or basically people who are the kind of most active and noisiest on social media. And they don't always make the best kind of experts. And as you're being drawn into these communities, in the example of coronavirus, you might be starting off with the question of, are these vaccines safe? And the answer may be from some people, no, these vaccines aren't safe. They're quite dangerous. They can give your children autism. They can they have mercury in them. So you start reading more and more stuff about that and you find communities that discuss that topic in particular. And within that community, you'll find another kind of sub-community of people who have even more extreme beliefs who think, well, you know, it's not just the mercury in the vaccines you have to worry about, but the microchips that Bill Gates has been putting in there. Now, not everyone's going to go on that journey and be drawn all the way in, but some people will. And they tend to become kind of crazy people who make the most noise. But what we see in some circumstances is how those communities are then effectively weaponized by state actors. And we've seen that in particular with Dynamic 17, for example, where we've seen Russia taking these kind of communities and giving them a platform on their media networks, on um, taking them to things like UN committees and using them for their own purposes. So I, I think when you talk about disinformation, you always need to see it in the context of not what an outside actor is doing to us but what we're doing to ourselves and until we address that issue it's going to be very hard to realistically counter this disinformation that we're seeing perfect um you know 
your description of disinformation by the state actor reminds me of something that you mentioned in the book about uh, the Kremlin's disinformation plan. It's a, you called it a 4D approach, dismiss, distort, distract, and dismay. Can you tell us a little bit about um, that methodology employed by the Kremlin? Yes. Yeah, so um, often there's, uh, you know, we have these four Ds and it's how the Kremlin kind of approaches their messaging. So, um, for example, very recently uh, we've had a development in the Scripple poisoning case in the UK where the uh, UK government announced they were charging a third suspect that Bellingham had actually identified two years ago. And the reaction from the head of the Russian intelligence services was to claim that, oh, this is actually just a distraction from uh, the current situation in the UK uh, with regards to our kind of gas crisis. Um, and this is the kind of thing they say a lot that oh it's, it's they try to point in another direction oh it's actually about this thing it's not really about the thing they're talking about it's about this other thing um, so that's kind of like the distract thing this it's also another form uh, similar to dismay where they say oh well it's just you know it's, it's the you know British again you know making a noise about this uh, scriffle case to try and kind of distract from you know the problems in the UK isn't it isn't it ridiculous so they act kind of horrified that the British would dare do such a thing this is such a terrible thing deceive is straightforward lying and we see that all the time with russia and i think with the cases um, i've described uh, in my opening you see that all the time i mean with mh17 three days after mh17 was shot down they were presenting fake evidence photoshopped satellite imagery lying about radar imagery after you know 298 people have been killed by one of their missiles so and they will do they will lie just like as at a drop of a hat they lie as easy as they breathe i mean it's it's when you work on this topic, it's, it's quite shocking to see at the different levels of government how this happens. And this is even something that's targeted uh, myself and Bellingcat. I mean, the Russian government has previously described us as uh, part of the intelligence services and paid for by the UK government and all these other allegations against us that they've no evidence whatsoever to back up. But, you know, if they make it in a, a public statement, then they have lots of loyal media that will go ahead and report that. Members of our audience aren't as familiar with Bellingcat. Um, could you tell us a little bit how you got started and uh, how you use network effects and open source to gather information uh, to uncover war crimes and other uh, malfeasance? the introduction of smartphones and the launch of the iPhone that then led to social media sharing apps and lots of information being shared all the time by people across the world. Basically, people were going around with a phone that was effectively a sensor for all kinds of information. They'd take photographs, film it, it would appear online. But early on, I, I was kind of just like some ordinary guy on the internet and I was just interested in what was happening in Libya in 2011. And I realized you could use these videos coming from Libya to actually get a much greater understanding about the conflict because rather than being a journalist on the ground with one point of view, you had lots of people putting videos online that you could then verify through various processes. One which became key to kind of the entire field is something called geolocation where you look at um, kind of features in a video like mountains and buildings and you can match that off to um, satellite imagery. Um, and if you've watched the documentary Don't F With Cats, then you'll see they, they're basically doing open source investigation. Um, but we basically turned it into a whole kind of field of investigation. And our first big story, um, and when I say we, I mean, it was at first a group of just volunteers and a little bit of money for a website. But we started looking into the downing of Malaysian Airlines 17 and using publicly available information, be it social 
social media posts or satellite imagery, um, we started construct reconstructing what happened. First of all, by tracking the route of a missile launcher that was uh, heading towards the site uh, of a missile launch just before MX-17 was shot down, and then using open source videos of you know people filming a military convoy in Russia along a very long route, which had the same missile launcher in it, to connect that missile launcher to Russia, then using the social media pages of the military unit in question to identify every single officer, their rank, and who was in the convoy in that military unit. So we kind of built it up into a bigger and bigger thing. And um, that then expanded into a whole range of different investigations. Um, and probably what we're best known for at the moment is our investigations into Russians assass Russia's assassination. So starting with the attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal in Salisbury in 2018 using uh, Novichok, we were able to identify um, the two suspects as GRU officers using leaked information from um, the Russian uh, date where... Russia is so hopelessly corrupt that everyone in the bureaucracy is trying to make a bit of money on the side, and they do that by selling data. And we were able to access things like passport data, phone records, that allowed us to identify not only the real identity of two suspects, the two famous guys who were on Russia Today saying they were sports nutrition salesmen, but then that led us to more suspects who were involved with it. We linked them to another assassination using a nerve agent in um, Bulgaria, an attempted assassination of Emilian Gebrev, an arms dealer. That then allowed us to connect that group to a um, basically a scientific research center in Russia, which was populated by scientists from the Russian um, chemical weapons program. And then when Alexei Navalny was poisoned, the Russian opposition leader, we checked the phone records of these guys and it happened they'd been in contact with an SF FSB team, Russian domestic intelligence, um, who had been following Navalny for a couple of years, including on the day he was poisoned. And there was a lot of communication between them on the day he was poisoned. Um, and then that led us to multiple other cases where Russian opposition figures, activists, and just you know quite minor dissidents had been followed by the same team and fell Ill, mysteriously ill and, and in some cases died. So that in one sense has been a kind of two and a half year investigation that's still in, in, ongoing and we literally have a backlog of assassinations we have to investigate because we found so much evidence of this stuff going on what i find amazing is um what you're doing with it, just volunteers um is comparable to the government uh, agencies but you seem to be even better than they are with just volunteers what is it about uh, using a loose combination of volunteers and some simple uh, approaches that makes you uh, more competitive than state state actors? I think um, it's because we have access to as, as many people as want to be involved with what we're doing. Um, a big part of what we're doing is we kind of network with a range of different people in different ways. You know, we have like a social media community who can get involved and have ideas and suggestions. And we connect to human rights organizations and lawyers and activists and NGOs. So we kind of are able to draw on their experience, but also share our knowledge and experience with them. And I think because we're able to build these large networks um, that allows us to look at these issues in a way from kind of multiple angles with multiple kind of viewpoints and experience and basically just raw manpower to actually be able to do a lot of this work because a lot of it is just looking for needles and haystacks but if you've got 500 people looking for a needle in one haystack it makes life a lot easier going back to your story about um the 
the firing, the missile firing that took down the Malaysian airline over the Ukraine. One of the things I found very interesting was you were able to use um, this Russian soldier's social media uh, as a source of information. Um, you know, in World War II, there was a famous poster that loose lips sink ships. And here, you know, we've exponentially increased the exposure of loose lips. Um, how do you think about how in the future armies are going to have to behave given that they can't really control uh, or, or keep information quiet? Well, I mean, we've, the reaction from Russia is maybe clues us into that a bit. I mean, after we had been doing this for a while and got more uh, kind of well-known for doing it, Russia started putting out a lot of information posters to its soldiers saying, don't bring your mobile phones with you, or, you know, don't take photos of your activity. Uh, then the uh, State Duma in Russia passed a new law um, making it illegal for Russian soldiers to take any photographs or publish any photographs or videos of their service. Um, and that would seem to be a direct response to what we'd been able to do. One of the big clues we had with missile launcher through Russia were just ordinary people who saw this military convoy and thought, oh, cool, I'll film this and put it on social media. And we were able to find that and then piece together the whole route. Um, so it, it's a hard one for them to address. And the thing is, tanks and planes and stuff are interesting and people are always going to take photographs of them. Um, I, I think it's really down to kind of the militaries to... If they want to counter this, they really have to kind of educate people. Um, I had a book club uh, a few years back with Seymour Hirsch, um, and he discussed in his autobiography called The Reporter about what it's like to be an investigative journalist. But he acted as like a lone wolf. Um, and you're sort of like the opposite. You know, you're using, you know, as you said, 500 people to go investigate matters. Um, you know, what Hirsch said was that he had real difficulty acting as a investigative reporter within uh, normal journalism. They were unwilling to kind of make long-term investments in evaluating or investigating certain situations, just like the amount of time that you've put into some of, uh, into some of these projects. How do you think about the future of investigative journalism, or is it even journalism? How do you think about the future of investigations? Well, I've actually encountered Seymour's Hirsch's work in relation to chemical weapons attack in Syria, and his work actually fueled a lot of conspiracy theories about these attacks. Um, for example, on the August 21st attack he, uh, in 2013, where you know, over a thousand people were killed, he wrote a very lengthy piece explaining how actually it was, I believe it was a Turkish supplying chemical weapons to jihadis, and he had this whole long piece. And it was absolute nonsense because you could see from the open source evidence that the munitions used had been used by the Syrian army forces before. And I, I, I think this idea of a kind of lone wolf journalist, um, you know, being held back by the, you know, his editors is maybe something that Seymour Hersh should have maybe, you know, thought about a bit more carefully because certainly his work on Syria was an embarrassment because it was really like trash. I mean, he even had a supposed intercepted conversation that between two uh, U.S. soldier and U.S. intelligence officials, so it claimed, that read like badly translated Russian Tom Clancy fan fiction. Um, so I think, that, and looking at the future of journalism, I'm certainly from our experience working with the likes of, for example, uh, we, we have people now at the New York Times at the visual investigation team who are former Bellingcat members. We set up a team with the BBC who used open source investigation and collaborative networks to do, you know, really high quality, impactful, award-winning journalism. 
when I think about the founding principles of Bell and Cat, which you haven't mentioned yet, which is identify, verify, and amplify, maybe with also a little bit of transparency throughout. Can you talk a little bit about the foundational principles that you have and, and why it leads to your success? When I first started doing this, I was just like some ordinary guy who had no background in journalism, who just wanted to understand what these videos coming from Libya showed me. So I didn't want to put information out there that was untrue because that had no benefit to me because I'd just be lying to myself. And really, the blog I started was more for me to have a way to write down these interesting things I was finding always for my own interest. And then if the people wanted to read it, it was fine. Um, but... I always knew the limits of my own knowledge. So I never tried to make grand announcements about a video. I'd say, here's a video. It has this bomb in it. I've just gone through all these different sites and sources to piece together what this bomb is. And therefore, I think based off all these links I've just shared with you and all the evidence I've just shared with you, this is what I think it is. And because I did that all the time, it started that a level of transparency meant um, people reading that started building a kind of trust in what I was doing because I was always trying to be very, very clear about how I went from point A to point B to point C. When often when you were seeing kind of blogs looking at conflicts, they were, you know, making huge leaps of logic and going, well, you know, they wanted to make the conclusion that, you know, America was bad or something like that. So they fit everything around that evidence. And I was just saying this video shows this bomb. And... Um, so that kind of then as we developed and matured as an organization as Bellingcat, it came up to this you know, principles of identify, verify and amplify. So we identify information as part of the investigation process. We then verify it through various analytical techniques like geolocation and chronolocation. Um, and that allows us to understand what we're looking at and uh, the situation. And then we have this kind of amplification stage. And that's about, you know, getting it out there, getting people to see it, you know. But it, it's not about always doing it the same way. I mean, with MH17, our research has been turned into, you know, articles on, you know, week by week, day by day, longer reports, submissions to the European Court of Human Rights, a podcast, and maybe even a TV series in the future. But it's the same kind of verified information that we identified earlier. It's just we're using it to amplify it in different ways to different types of audiences. Um, so that's kind of always been the principle of how we work at Bellingcat. And that transparency of our sources and where it comes from is very important. And even when we did the work on Russia, which involved using what we call closed sources, stuff that's not always publicly available, we are very transparent about how we came around finding it and trying to share as much of that as possible with the audience. And that led to actually to, uh, in the case of the Scripple poisoning and the Navani case, to Russian uh, news uh, reporters actually using those same sources to look into it. I think maybe some of them are trying to catch us out, but then having to say, actually, we've just found exactly the same thing, Bellingcast as exists, and kind of confirming our findings. I want to expand a little bit on the Amplify part. Um, in in your book, you mention your uh, very heavy use of Twitter. Um, can you talk a little bit about how much you use it, um, how it gets the ideas out there, who's listening to it, how successful is it in terms of just getting information to a whole lot of people? 
Well, early on, I mean, I was just kind of your average Twitter user with a blog, but these communities start to form around certain topics. And um, there were lots of people interested in what was happening in Syria, and they'd share my work, and they'd send me videos saying, hey, do you know what this is? And then I'd dig into it. And that became particularly useful around certain incidents like the big chemical attacks, where because of the kind of reputation I'd built for kind of looking at this stuff really meticulously, everyone would send me any link related to this stuff. So I... By that point, it wasn't even necessary for me to really search for stuff because people just found it for me and sent it over. But what I found very important to do is you've, in a way, got to equip your side with useful information because the other side are these kind of counterfactual communities who have endless blog posts and, you know, YouTube videos that will tell them they're right on kind of coronavirus being Bill Gates's idea or, you know, the earth being flat or the white helmets all being terrorists. And on the other side, unless they are equipped with that kind of same level of information, it's very hard for them to actually kind of make their point. And some, it's not really about convincing those other people, but kind of putting the information out there. So anyone seeing those discussions doesn't just see one side with what appears to be all the information, the other side kind of scrambling for bits and pieces. Where do you see the future of Bellingcat going in terms of scaling up, um, expanding its mandate? What, uh, what's your future? Um, I mean, a lot of our focus at the moment is split into three areas uh, of justice and accountability, education and tech development. Um, education is very important because um, a big part of what we do is based on kind of building networks. Uh, and we do literally train hundreds of journalists and activists every year to do this kind of work. We're now networking more with universities and uh, local kind of media uh, collaboratives and working to train them how to do open source investigations like we do. So eventually they can kind of take that over and do it themselves in their local area. We're also then working a lot on justice and accountability. So there's been a lot of questions from bodies like the International Criminal Court about how open source evidence can be used in those courts. And we've been doing a lot of work now working on things like investigating um, Saudi airstrikes in Yemen using a process we've developed with lawyers that kind of refines and improves the process we've used before with the intent of that information then being able to be used in a courtroom. Um, and we've had quite a lot of success with that. Um, we've had mock, uh, mock trial on Yemen with kind of real lawyers and a real judge who went on to join the ICC where we tested if for open source evidence can be submitted in court because that's still a question that needs to be answered and fortunately that was successful. So we're going to continue building on that and trying to find more real world examples where our investigative work has actually been used to bring people to account. And we've had success in the past. There was a case in Cameroon of soldiers executing two women and two children um, in a video that was shared on social media. And thanks to our collaborative work with uh, the BBC and Amnesty International, um, Cameroon um, convicted those soldiers soldiers uh, of those murders. So there is a way that, you know, this kind of work can have a real world impact and bring accountability for terrible actions. You know, one of the great challenges that our society faces right now is to persuade the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. And you mentioned that there is this community out there that is, you know, harping on autism and, and other problems and risks associated with, with the vaccine. How should um, NGOs and governments uh, fight back against this sort of, of information that's out there to persuade um, people that this is not the right way to go? How do, how do you challenge 
um, communities online to, to try to get better truth seeking. I mean, it's really difficult because I mean we've seen the reactions uh, um, what happened after the January 6th violence, where kind of QAnon was pushed off social media. But you, you, it basically pushes them off to the edges of the internet. They don't go away; they just go somewhere else where they're less visible, and it might reduce the kind of ability for people to be drawn into those communities. But those communities do still exist in different ways. I think with coronavirus, especially in the US, it's particularly dangerous because you not only have kind of these fringe communities, but mainstream kind of political figures who kind of promote these kind of ideas. And that's immensely dangerous. If the media is not, doesn't act responsibly in these cases, then you will have these problems occur time and time again, because you're always going to have people who have fringe ideas that are kind of anti-science, who will, especially in America, see that as a, a kind of you know Democrat versus Republican thing. And for me, I think that's incredibly dangerous. I think I think some people have suggested maybe we should just kind of kick all these people off the internet. That's just you know ridiculous. I like to think some of the work we've done with Balancat shows how you can engage with communities, and rather than having people you know not trust the government and then go off and find other people who don't trust the government and then just get really angry at the government about you know coronavirus or whatever it may be, instead you can get them engaged with communities where you say, okay, we think there's a problem, recognise there's a problem. What can we do about it in a positive way? I end each session uh, with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to the sleuthing business? Some of the stuff we've achieved at Balancat is almost a miracle. I mean, I, I started doing this, when I started doing this back in 2011, I was working in an admin and finance role for a company that housed asylum seekers, and I just did this in my spare time. And because, you know, of all the, of everything that's happened, we're now in a position where, you know, we're working with the International Criminal Court, we're you know, getting people convicted for terrible crimes, we've, um, you know, helped um, police, for example, in at Europol find victims of child abuse and find their abusers. And it's all part of being a community and actually seeing the positive aspects of the internet and really kind of going after those positive aspects. And it's something you have to be proactive about. You can't just sit back and hope you join the right Facebook group. You have to kind of get involved. But one thing I have discovered is there are people who do that. And there are people that make incredible contributions, you know, literally saving children from being abused because they took the time to look into something when someone else didn't. So I think if we kind of can live in that world, then maybe the internet isn't all conspiracy theories and angry people. Elliot, thank you so much. All right, uh, that ends today's session. Uh, I want to make a plug for our next episode. And I do want to let you know that there will be no program next week because of the long Columbus Day weekend. We will be back uh, ready to go on October 17th, Sunday. We will have Laura Walls, who is a professor of English at Notre Dame, discuss her new biography of Henry David Thoreau, and we will discuss the continuing relevance of Walden and transcendentalism. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or wish to read a transcript, you can find them at our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for, uh, for October 17th to find out what happens next. Thank you, and you can disconnect at this time. Bye-bye.